Welcome to the CU20 podcast. We're a group of young Christians living in Montreal, exploring multiple topics about Christianity and how they apply to our modern world. Today, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, which focuses on the transfiguration of Christ. Hope you enjoy. So I, I want to tell you a story about, I, I know some of you know this story because I've used it before as an analogy, but uh, I'm going to say it again. So when I was in Bible college, we, uh, we were in this sort of building that was also used for other purposes, kind of like an office block, but you know, not, not tall, kind of flat. And uh, we were just in this one sort of conference hall. That's where ma- most of the classes took place. And so it was normal to see other people in and around the building and one day we go in, and it was a particularly early class in the day, and we're sort of hanging out in the lobby, and, and again, like, it's not uncommon to have other people coming in and out of the lobby, but there was this lady in the, in the lobby that was, uh, she had, like, really messed up hair, she was, she was dressed really strangely, she had, like, this big sort of, like, shawl over her, she was all hunched over, she was acting very strange, she kept going around with, like, a cloth and, like, cleaning things, and none of us had ever seen her before, and she clearly didn't seem like she worked there. And so one or two people came up and were like, are you okay? Like, you know, what's going on? Uh, what, you know, kind of, you know, trying to say nicely, like, why are you here? What are you doing? Uh, and she would be very kind of, uh, give kind of odd replies. She's like, no, I'm just here to clean. I'm just here to clean. Uh, and so then she starts to try to come into the room with us, like the, the classroom. And one of the two students like blocked her and we're like, no, like this is a private place. You can't come into the classroom. And so eventually she kind of like shuffled off and went away. And so we all get into the classroom and we sit down and we're all kind of getting settled for the day. And then, um, and then the, the kind of, I guess one of the teachers of the, the, the school comes up and he was supposed to teach us in that day. And he's like, oh, actually, like, it's not going to be me teaching you today. There's a guest teacher. Sure enough, this lady walks in and she's like st- st- upright. She takes this wig off her head because she's wearing a wig and she takes a shawl off and she walks straight up to the mic and she's like, well, like, I think I met some of you in the lobby. <laughs> I'm your lecturer today. And as soon as that happens, like you, I mean, I felt and I know because I spoke to the people afterwards, this huge like pang of guilt to be like, oh my gosh, like we treated her really badly. You know, like we were trying to, I mean, I'll be honest, like I was kind of, a little frustrated with her presence. She was a bit disruptive. Uh, and it was all like a, an act. And, and the point of it was to illustrate the necessity of being kind to everyone because you don't really know who they are. And more than that, it was, she pointed to that passage that Jesus speaks about where you know, the way that you treat the least in society, that's how you treat me. Like essentially Jesus is disguised as the, the poor and the sick and the, you know, those who are really needy in society how we treat them is Jesus is going to take note of that and it's a reflection of how we feel about him. And so it was a very powerful illustration of remembering to treat people with dignity and respect. And for today, what I wanted to show you in it is that it's a powerful illustration of there's often more going on than what meets the, meets the eye and that it's important to look deeply and to pause. And nowhere is that more true than Jesus himself particularly for the disciples as they followed Jesus, what they were constantly encountering was this idea that he was far more than what met the eye. That even though outwardly, outwardly he didn't seem like very much, we know from very, very brief descriptions given in the Bible of what he looked like, he didn't look like much. He was a very average looking dude. Um, and he comes from very humble origins. And so the idea of who he truly was 
was very veiled, was really hidden and it was difficult to see. But you see these cracks coming throughout the gospel where the power that he exhibits or the way that he speaks and the authority that he commands gets, like it's this huge paradox between what he looks like and how he acts and what he's capable of. This is huge discrepancy between the two. And so all the way throughout all of the gospels, particularly in what are called the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this question coming up again and again, which is, who is he? The disciples are asking themselves this question. The crowd is asking themselves the question, who is this guy? The one who can command waves and, and storms. The one who can feed 5,000. The one who can command demons to go out and they go. It constantly comes up, this question, who is this? And in those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it all comes to this point. There's this pivot moment in the stories, uh, which is really seen as the climactic answer to this question, which keeps getting posed. So up to this point, this question keeps getting asked, who is he, who is he? And then we get to this point, uh, which is the Mount of Transfiguration. The point of the story where Jesus goes up on a mountain and he takes three of the disciples with him. And on that time, as he prays, we get to see really a peek behind the curtain, this, this, this lifting of the veil, and we see the glory of who Jesus is. And he begins to exhibit this incredible godly splendor. And it's completely taken aback by it. And it's written in such a way and positioned in such a way that now we get the answer. This is who Jesus is. And it's after this pivotal moment that takes place that the road to Jerusalem begins. The sort of what can be seen as the final act of Jesus Christ's life and ministry begins as he starts to go towards us. Because now, now we know. Now we know who he is. And so Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to find ourselves today. And that's the description uh, that's the place in the story where we find this transfiguration that takes place. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 28, is where we're going to be today. So, Luke, 20, uh, Luke 8, starting in verse 28. <clears throat> now about eight days... After saying, <clears throat> sorry, now after, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why don't we pray together? God, we want to approach this word tonight with a sense of seriousness, 
this is a revelation here. And God, if there's a veil still on our hearts, something that prevents us from seeing the magnitude and the significance of this, Lord, may you lift that veil so that we too can experience a seeing of the glory, an experiencing of the weightiness of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal this to our hearts, that we would know it not simply cognitively, but we would know in the depth of our heart the significance of who Jesus is. Lord, as we ask ourselves the question tonight, who is he? Help us to come up with the right answer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a really unique experience, one that doesn't happen in any other way uh, during the life and ministry of Jesus. Even after his resurrection and up to his ascension, never again does he appear like this. This is a unique event. And there's a lot of uh, connections to what's going on here to Old Testament imagery. There's this amazing connection to the past as well as a connection to the future because what we're seeing here is a sneak peek of when you look at the book of Revelation and particularly verse uh, chapter 4 and 5, when you see in glory who Jesus is going to be and how he is going to be on that day, we get to, you know, we're seeing a small piece of that. We're also seeing a reintroduction of some of these Old Testament ideas, when particularly the, the Mount Sinai and the way that God appears at Mount Sinai with its clouds and there's, there's bright light and there's voices and there's these things going on. We see this really being recaptured by this transfiguration that Jesus goes through as well. I like to think of this as sort of like a, a sneak preview. Like you know how you get that with like uh, movie trailers these days where it's like five second little shot of like what the movie's going to be about. Uh, it's kind of like that of like who Jesus really is, a little sneak preview of the glory of Jesus. And that's what we're getting here. And there's a lot of weightiness to this. In the same way that we see that the power being manifest on Sinai, we see the power being manifest here, but there's a difference that's really important to grasp here. If you remember the story of Exodus that when Moses comes down, off of the mountain, his, his whole face is glowing because he's been in the presence of God. But there's a difference here because that is a, is a reflected glory. It's a glory that faded over time. It wasn't emanating because of himself, but it was sort of a reflection of the glory of God. But now we see that Jesus is not reflecting any glory. He is emitting glory. His face becomes glorious. His clothes, his very body emanate this glory, this brightness out of them. And Jesus is not simply reflecting the glory of God. It, what it means to tell us is that He is the glory of God. We see the, the true glory of God not reflected in Him, but coming out of Him as if He is the source of this glory. And that's a huge moment. And that's a huge difference to see. And we see Moses here. We see Elijah here. And a lot of commentators look at these two figures being chosen because they represent really the wholeness of the, the story of God up to this point. When you break up the two big movements that God has been doing uh, in terms of salvation history up to this point, it can be summarized into two categories, the law and the prophets. And Moses represents the law. He is the law giver. And so he comes in as the representative of the law, what God has done in, in that way of providing for his people. And then Elijah, the first prophet, comes in as the representative of God working through the prophets. And what we see through, in a few different places in the Gospels and in the, the writing after that, Jesus Christ, the law and the prophets pointed to him. 
that the whole reason they were written is at least in part to be pointing to him, to show that he is the one that fulfills them, that he is the one who brings them together and completes their purpose. And so we see these two men, these godly, amazing figures of the Old Testament coming in and they're talking with Jesus and they're talking to him about his departure. And that's so key as well. They're discussing with him what is going to be the climax of his life and of his ministry, the departure, which means actually literally the word being spoken of here, where even though it's translated departure, is the word exodus. There's this exodus that's going to take place, that Jesus Christ is going to do this, and it's going to be the fulfillment of that. And so Peter sees this. He sees this incredible moment that's happening here. And I love Peter. He's like the most relatable of all disciples because he's always screwing up in one way or another. Like, and actually, like the passage admits, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, he, like you know, poor Peter. But he suggests like, oh, let's set up some booths. The word he uses is tabernacles. Let's, let's set up three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And there's a couple things that he might mean here. One of them might mean like he's just kind of caught up in what's happening. And he's like, I don't want this to end. Like, let's, let's, let's build a temple here. Like, people can come, like, whatever. Like, just stay here. This is amazing. But it, it's probably the, the reason that he's sort of scolded, not scolded, but at least corrected in the moment, is because what he's indicating by what he's saying is that he kind of sees them as equal. That one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the voice comes at that moment probably as a reaction to what Peter has just said to correct him. Because it it can't be like that. It can't be Jesus one among many Old Testament heroes. It can't be just another significant religious man. He, it cannot, you can't see him that way. And the cloud comes, and they're terrified because man, when the cloud comes in the Old Testament, it's a big deal. And so a cloud comes, and then this voice comes, and it corrects Peter by saying, you know, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. There's an exclusivity to what's being said here. This is Jesus uniquely being regarded. Listen to Him. We need to pay attention to this because what is being spoken of here and the way that Peter is being corrected is a way that we too need to be corrected today, potentially at least, because there is a way that we can fall into the, the type of temptation that is very, very common in the world today, which is to treat Jesus as one among many. Yes, Jesus is significant, but He's no more significant than this one or that one or that path or this path. He's one among many. And that's a very, very common understanding of how religion works out there in the world. That yes, you have your path. I have my path. They're all going to the same place and we're all going to get there and, and you know, find each other there at the end. And that's by and large how people who are irreligious or just sort of spiritual today will see things. And it's become the predominant view in culture. It's become, become the predominant way of, of society at large dealing with religious claims, being like, that's nice, you can hold on to that, but it's not exclusive, it cannot be the only truth. And this passage is showing us that we cannot treat Jesus that way. That if we want to be serious about what the Bible is teaching, and we want to be like hold to it with integrity, we cannot allow this pluralism to cause us to deny what is clearly being spoken of here. 
And now when it comes to religious tolerance and, and pluralism, I do understand the motivation of it. I understand the motivation to say, you know, the divisions between us are just cause strife and just cause unrest. So let's do our best to just, everyone can equally hold on to their claims and, and we'll just get along. I understand the benefit of that and why that's an important thing to seek, but to, in order to achieve that, you need to whitewash not only the claims of Christianity, but the claims of many other religions, which, which have very high claims to be true in a unique way. Uh, Jesus is claiming to be unique, not like anybody else, but unique and uniquely important. And so if you want to create a culture that has this pluralistic understanding and everyone's truth is equal, then you need to whitewash, downplay Jesus. And I'm sorry, but that's not, I can't be a Christian and also accept that. It's just not possible at all. Jesus does not allow for this. All the way throughout the gospel, his claims, his acts show that he believes he is more than a prophet and he acts as more than just a prophet, more than just a holy man. And if, if he's right, if the Bible presents him accurately and he's, his claims about himself are true, then what that means is that he is infinitely more than a prophet. He cannot simply be that. He's infinitely more than a prophet. But if he's wrong, then that means he's infinitely less than a prophet. Because if he's wrong, then you can't just say, well, he was a good guy. He just had a God complex. Like, no, like he would be so wrong about who God was, so wrong about revealing the true nature of God, that he would be infinitely less than a prophet if he was wrong. So he's either infinitely more or he's infinitely less. He cannot simply be good. Uh, no, nice guy, one among many. It can't be the case. One of the commentators uh, commented on this as well. Uh, Daryl uh, Bock says this. The event also gives insight to these privileged disciples about where God's plan is headed. Jesus is not just a meek Galilean teacher, nor should he be seen as someone who merely calls on us to love one another. Perhaps the most popular current image of Jesus. He is not equal of Moses, Muhammad, or Joseph Smith. These current popular perceptions of Jesus are a major distortion of who he is. He is the glorified and chosen one of God, who one day will manifest himself with all the glory that the mountain scene reveals. So we're seeing here an image of who Jesus is, truly. One that will be revealed to all people in the future. And like I said in Revelation 4 and 5, which I encourage you to read, by the way, if you want to. It's an amazing, powerful, powerful image of Jesus. But the point of the transfiguration is, from our perspective, to highlight the uniqueness of Jesus. The reason that it's in the Gospels, the reason that the disciples were there to bear witness to it, is to highlight who He is and show us who He is. But as great <clears throat> as this image is, we cannot take it alone and without context. Because Luke doesn't allow for that. The way that Luke frames this story is that it's sandwiched between two other really key moments where Jesus Christ is predicting His death. Beforehand, we see that Jesus asks his disciples, who do, they, who do the people say, or I think he says, who do you say I am? And the first answer they give him is, well, the people say, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. And he says, who do you say I am? And then Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are essentially the chosen one, God's Messiah. And then after that, Jesus speaks about the fact, I'm going to go and die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, handing myself over 
to be killed, but after three days, rise again. Immediately following that story is this story. And then immediately after this story is another time where Jesus will remind his disciples, I'm about to go and die. Now, this is important. And Luke wants us to know that it's important because he basically never does this. Almost never in the Gospels does Luke connect one story to another. Luke's style is saying, this happened, this happened, this happened. And they kind of disconnect the stories that are kind of brought together in clumps that make sense, but they're not woven together as a narrative that's supposed to flow one to the other. But this one clearly is. You look in verse 28, he says, Now about eight days after saying, after these sayings, he took to the... It's very rare for Luke to do that, to connect. Now after he said this, he did that. He connects it for a very important reason. It's because you cannot disconnect the mountain from the cross. They need to be seen together. When you look at the mountain, you have to hold it in one hand and at the same time hold the cross in your other hand. They come together and by understanding both, we have a chance of understanding who Jesus is. We see the topic of discussion here between Moses, Elijah and Jesus is his exodus, his exiting of the world. And it's an exodus in more than just him exiting, but in the same way that the exodus of Moses was this great time where the people were liberated, now we see Jesus coming and achieving a true, final, ultimate exodus in that freeing people from their highest enemy, that of sin and death, and liberating them into the final and ultimate promised land, that of an experience of being with God for all eternity. This is a huge moment, and this is an incredibly important part of Jesus Christ's ministry. We cannot disconnect it at all. We, uh, <clears throat> this, it's interesting that, though, I don't think this moment is meant just for us. We see that it kind of began before the disciples were even awake, that they're sort of aroused and stirred up by it happening, but it already had begun. And what that leads me to think is that, no, Jesus, this was for Jesus too. He was gaining something from this as well. And remember at what point of the story that this takes place. It takes place at that, this pivot moment where from this point on, he begins his time going towards Jerusalem, the final chapter. And I think what's happening here is that Jesus is experiencing an encouragement and an affirmation about what he is about to do. Moses and Elijah come to talk about his death. His resurrection. They're coming to talk about this with him. Not only that, but we get this voice from heaven confirming what, almost word for word, what was said at his baptism. You know, you are like, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Very, very similar to what's said about Jesus at his baptism. We see again this affirmation, I believe, an encouragement to Jesus as he's about to plunge himself into the ultimate reason why he came, which is to die. And so, you know, sorry, just one more thing, touching upon that same issue. Every single account of the Mount of Transfiguration ends, well, sort of leads on to the next story, which is the next story being he comes down the mountain and there's this demon-possessed child who the disciples have been unable to cast this demon out of him. And it's this visceral scene where, I mean, there's just 
this high emotional tension of this, this awful condition of this child who's as soon as the, uh, Jesus approaches, uh, the child just screams and goes into a fit. Uh, and, and again, like there's this frustration. The disciples haven't been able to do anything for this kid. Uh, and he's in this terrible state. And Jesus comes and, and is, shows his power once again by immediately casting this demon out. But there's, there's this kind of interesting juxtapositioning between these two scenes where you see this beautiful mountaintop scene immediately coming next. Uh, we, we see this ugly scene in the darkness. It's, it's, it's rough. It's very human. You know, it's very visceral. And I think the reason they're put together is because we, we again see Jesus plunging himself back into the reason that he came. The reason he came to liberate, to bring, you know, it's nice to have the mountaintop experience, but that's, it's not an end in and of itself. It's meant to illustrate something. It's meant to do something. And that's, that's the whole reason Jesus came. He didn't come just to be and to be like, oh, check, check me out. It's like, no, there was far more. He came to liberate. And we can, we can have, a, I think, a small parallel in our life too. It's nice to seek these mountaintop experiences with God, to have these great glorious revelations of who He is. But there's a point to it. Like it leads to something. It leads to us taking that significant weighty truth out into the world to bring the liberation that we can through the power of God, to bring to bear, bringing light to the darkness that's out there as well. And so we have that onus of responsibility on us too. We take the message uh, into these situations too. But like what I mentioned earlier, the framing here is so important that before and after this story, we have Jesus Christ speaking of his death. We have within the story, Jesus Christ being prepared for his death that's about to come. We see uh, <clears throat> the mountain and the cross must be combined, cannot be separated. And by putting them together, what, we're, what I think is being revealed here, when we understand it within context, is not simply that Jesus is God, but that he is a God who has come and bridged the gap. It's, it would be one thing to say, okay, Jesus Christ truly is God, and he's the God that is sort of behind the scenes of it all. He's sort of separated, and the way we commonly think of God, like we don't really have, God's not really present in this world, but when we die and we cross over that gap, then we're going to meet with God and go into that new sort of existence. It's more than that. That even though what we see here is a peak that, yes, Jesus Christ is truly God, with the framing of it around it as well, we see that God's not on the other side of that gap, but He's kind of the bridge over that gap too. That He's come into this world to bring us over that bridge that is Him. And so to go back to the beginning and say, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Both parts are necessary to get the right answer. And this comes so that the disciples may understand who he truly is. Because to follow him, you need to know who he is. Otherwise, you're not going to follow him the way that he needs to. And so we're going to let this sink into our lives. And it takes time. You know, we see just before this time, Peter confessing, you know, you're the chosen one, you're the Messiah. But he doesn't get it. He, even though he intellectually maybe understands something, he doesn't really get it yet. There's a weight to this that's staggering a way to this that comes slowly in life. And that's been the case for me as well. I've had moments of, of really understanding this truth, but more than that, it's come slowly upon me that when I became a Christian, 
I kind of understood this, but then more and more it grows over time of realizing the significance and the uniqueness of Jesus. And we see that the disciples are quiet before this. I mean, they see this thing happen and they don't talk about it. And I kind of get that. I mean, I've been in a situation in the part where I've witnessed something or I've been part of something and it's been so weighty, so heavy that I can't talk about it. I've got to collect my thoughts. I've got to understand it. It doesn't make sense to me yet. I need time to process this. And I think they're in that time. I mean, you can't even imagine what it must have been like for them to experience this. And they've experienced something like no other. It's staggering. The weight to this is huge. And what I want us to avoid is the very thing that Jesus was trying to get them avoid, which is don't misunderstand who I am. It's easy to do that. It's easy to put Jesus in a box that's much smaller than he is. And there's a, again, there's a tendency out there to do that, even within a lot of churches these days, to sort of lessen who Jesus is. There's been a pullback from the way we interpret certain biblical truths. You know, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Like sort of demysticizing the Bible, like taking the miracles out, taking the virgin birth out, taking the, the literal historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ out, taking the significance of the incarnation out, taking these things out and being like, you know, let's, let's create a Christianity that's more palatable. It's, it's much more easier to swallow. Let's make Jesus a, a symbol. So, like someone that's nice to follow. The resurrection is just a symbol, a, a beautiful idea, but no more than that. And when we do that, we're robbing Jesus of, well, of his own words, for one, but we're also robbing Christianity of its power. You can't turn away from the incarnation and still have Christianity. You can't turn away from the, the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and still have Christianity. And the irony is, the very reason that the, a lot of the mainline churches attempted to, the reason that they wanted to sort of make Christianity more palatable is because they thought ah, Christianity is not going to survive the more enlightened intellectual age without us sort of tweaking it, tweaking our understanding, making it a more sort of intellectually palatable thing. And so they did it in order to be contemporary, in order to be relevant, but in doing so, they become completely irrelevant. I mean, so many of the churches in the regions around the world that they had this move, this push to sort of take the miracles out, the church is dying in those worlds, in those regions. And in the regions of the world where they stayed to the, you know, the, the orthodox truth of the last 2,000 years of Christianity, Jesus is incarnate. The resurrection is a historical fact. By and large, in those regions, the, the cross, I mean, the, the church is, is growing. It's strong. We see that. As, as we can track that through history. We see it, and, and I think there's a significant reason to that. Not only because I think that's God's will, but even when we just take it from our level, if Jesus is just a symbol, what good is that to me when I'm facing fear? What good is that to me when I'm facing death? When I'm facing the very worst aspects of myself and addiction and, 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 you know, and, and dysfunction, what good is a, is a non-miraculous, powerless type of Christianity that's just about ideas and principles? I think it's of no value to me or very little. But when I'm, when I'm deeply in despair, when I'm afraid for my life, when I'm facing death, when I'm facing the very worst aspects of myself, to know that I can call upon a God who has power, 
I can call, call upon a Savior who truly saves. I can call upon a hope that's literal and, and has you know, a promise in the world to come. When I can call upon these things, this has power. And we see this in the, the transfiguration, the true power of Jesus Christ, the veil being lifted to see what it is that we hold on to. That is the power. If we take the miraculous out of the gospel, we lose that and we begin to follow something that's not Christian at all. And for us to kind of live in this, like I said earlier, it's going to take time. It's not just a cognitive understanding. It takes it takes a, a new positioning of our hearts, a new experience of truth. Now, so, so today, what are we? Are we a classroom or are we a church? Okay, if we're a classroom, then all I have to say to you is, true or false, Jesus is the, the incarnate Son of God. You go, true, sir. Like, that was how it would be in my school, at least. <laughs> if we're a classroom, all we need to do is intellectually ascend to this. But if we're a church... It's more than just understanding this. It's about like experiencing this. The common thing that holds us together is not that we kind of know who Jesus is, but that we like know who Jesus is, that we've had an experience of who He is, and that that's impacted our lives, and we're living in light of this truth, that in some sense we have seen His glory. And glory, the word glory in, in some senses just means weight significance, the, the truth of who He is, that we've seen His weight, we've seen His significance. And that's something that should bind us together, that we as a church see His significance, see the weight that He has, that it becomes real to us, something more real than the other ideas and values out there in the world, that the, the idea of who Jesus is has this weight to it in our life. And this is powerful. We see and we experience the power that it has to, to alter our perspective and to change our hearts and to open us up to what God desires for our lives. There's this amazing uh, kind of quote I found uh, from Doctor Who. I don't know if there's any Doctor Who fans. I, sadly, I'm not. Uh, I just heard the quote and I liked it. So don't come to talk to me about Doctor Who afterwards. I know the premise of it. So those who don't know what Doctor Who is, essentially the idea is that there is this, this character, Doctor Who, or the Doctor, and he is a very, very powerful uh, uh, being that exists outside of time. Uh, and so, but the, the premise of the story is that he always will choose sort of an, an accomplice, a, a partner, and he'll go through sort of these adventures with this very human counterpart. And so there's multiple iterations of it over many, many seasons. And so this apparently comes from uh, 2015, one of the episodes then, uh, with one of the characters, River Song, who was sort of this partner. Uh, and this is her, this is, uh, her quote. <clears throat> she says this, When you love the doctor, it's like loving the stars themselves. You don't expect a sunset to admire you back. And if I happen to find myself in danger, let me tell you, the doctor is not stupid enough or sentimental enough, and he is certainly not in love enough to find himself standing in it with me. And it's an interesting idea, isn't it, where she, she recognizes this powerful figure, this amazing being, and she says, yeah, I love him, but I in no way expect him to love me back. 
And the irony and the, the power of this scene is that the doctor is there. Like, she doesn't know it, but he's there, and that the doctor actually does love her. And so she's wrong. And I love, the, I love this quote because it gets behind the same kind of thing we're dealing with. When we see who Jesus is, there's a, there's a lifting of the veil, and we see his power, and we see his glory. We need to come to terms with the fact that he loves us. And that's not easy to come to terms with. It's akin to, you know, saying, you know, when you look at the scope of this universe, how huge it is and how small we are by comparison. And to say, God loves me? Come on. God, the one who created all of this, loves, pays attention to me. Ridiculous. Utterly foolish. I understand why other religions find this almost offensive to say that you would say God would love something like you. I understand that, and yet, this is what Christianity teaches. We are loved by something far greater than a sunset. We're loved by God himself. And he offers himself to us in perfect freedom, needing nothing from us, but just for our joy that gives him joy. He wants us near him. And the truth of this takes a while to settle in. It takes a while for the weight of this to come to bear in all the ways that it should in our life. It's so startling to the disciples that they can't even speak of it at first. Peter processes it, and then we actually do see what he comes out. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, Peter says this, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter speaks of the fact that this has become the bedrock of his faith. This moment of realizing who Jesus is. And then after the resurrection, when it all kind of comes together in fullness, understanding the fullness of the gospel, this is why he lives the life he lives. This is everything to him. Will it be everything to you? I mean, will this become the thing that you build your life upon? I mean, so, church, is, if it's true that you're loved by something infinitely higher and greater than a mere sunset, if you're loved in this way, accepted and rescued by this perfect Savior, why do you keep feeling so afraid? Why, why do you keep letting criticism and rejection get to you? Why do you allow the, you know, the brokenness of this world to crush you? Why do you allow yourself to dabble in those sins that you just can't shake? The transfiguration shows us the power about this message shows us the, the significance of who Jesus is. And we bring it together, we bring it home, it transforms you. It must transform you. We cannot 
let go of a supernatural Jesus. We cannot simply make Jesus human and nothing more. We lose it if that's the case. We cannot simply be uh, satisfied with an intellectual ascent of knowledge of who Jesus is. We must make this an existential felt reality. This is something we live, we understand, we feel the weight of this. To do so, my encouragement would be to make this real to you. You must sit at the feet of Jesus. Sit down often with Him to think, ponder, feel once again the weight of the significance of Him in our life. It's crucial that we do this, that we might live healthy, godly lives. It's crucial, if we want to live a healthy, godly life, it's crucial that we are staggered by Him, staggered by His love, staggered by His resurrection, by everything that He is. And I want to give you a moment now to do that. We're going to ask the, the worship team to come up once again. Sit down, don't stand up, unless you feel that it would be appropriate to do so. But they're going to come and sing one more song, the same song, uh, again. And we're going to turn the lights down, just prayerfully ponder the significance of Jesus, the weight of who He is, His love, His power, His significance, and the way that's meant to transform us. So, over to you guys. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like to know more about who we are and our church, you can visit www.peoplesmontreal.org. There you will find information about our location, service times, and more sermons and resources. We would love to meet you if you're ever in Montreal. Also, feel free to check us and follow us in our different social media. Thank you. Have a great day.